The mandatory leaving the mute button on my mic getting up here. Hello, everyone. I'm Pastor Brendan. I'm delighted to be bringing the word to you today. Um, first, a formal apology. Uh, I try and limit myself to once per year preaching in shorts and sandals, or shorts and, uh, and thongs in this case. Um, I'm using up my cred early this year um, because a couple of days ago, like a fool, um, I decided that I would go and visit a friend in Tarragindi, and I thought, I haven't walked in a long time. So I walked from Runcorn to Tarragindi in a massive overestimation of my, like, doesn't walk much to let's walk for three hours capacity. Um, and I'm kind of in damage control mode. So if you see me hobbling around like a penguin with rickets, uh, that's why. Um, incidentally, youth camp on tomorrow. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> um, our Bible reading comes from the book of Acts, chapter 16, verses 6 to 10. I'll race here. I don't see anyone racing. Oh, it's on the screen. I'm giving you extra time because I feel bad for you. Oh, I should read this. I'm playing with you. Acts 16, verses 6 to 10. Paul's vision of the man of Macedonia. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, and having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Uh, when they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. And we pray that you open it to our hearts today and open up our hearts to what you have to say to us. And we pray that in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. So this is, there's a concept called metacognition, and metacognition is the idea of thinking about the way we think. So cognition is thinking, meta is like a level back or beyond from something, so metacognition is when you think about how you think. If you say something stupid, and then you stop and go, now why did I say that stupid thing? Or if you're trying to wonder, why can't I concentrate on looking for an address on the road while there is music playing, even though the music does not interact with my eyes? This is all thinking about thinking. This is metacognition. And it's worth thinking about how we think about our relationship with God and the way that we seek to hear his voice, the way we think about that. And as we continue through this series about hearing from God and how we do that, it's worth thinking about our own internal assumptions and automatic thoughts about what role God plays in our life and how we should expect to hear from him. Because it's an automatic idea that we may have that will dictate how, uh, how we act and how we expect God to speak to us. For example, the way most believers tend to think about God is that he's maybe a little bit distant, a little bit removed, and if he needs me for any reason, 
He only has to send me a sign and I'll drop whatever I'm doing. I'm happy to assist him, like God the good neighbor. Um, you feel very good about him. He's got your number. You're happy to stop whatever you're doing to help him if he needs you. And when you think about that structure, that framework of a relationship with God, and you boil it down, it comes down to something that looks like, I will pursue my plan for my life unless God specifically tells me to do something else. And then after that's done, I will go back to my best plan. And you can understand charitably why people uh, have this kind of thought structure about their relationship with God. Because most Christians tend to think that way at least for a while in their walk. And then God does something in their life that wakes them up and they stop being a regular Christian and start being a committed Christian or devout Christian or whatever the leveled up version of Christian is. And they do this because they understand all the church language about God having a plan, having a plan for us, everyone having certain gifts, etc., uh, etc. Et and they know the stories of Christians from the Bible and the ones they've known in their lives who have had dramatic encounters with God intervening in their life, turning their world around, sending them off on an amazing journey to start a humanitarian organization in uh, Southeast Asia or to go to Bible college or become a missionary or something, you know, like over and above churchy, like beyond the regular churchy sphere. And most believers haven't experienced something like that kind of dramatic direction from God, or they do, and then they talk themselves out of it. And so they have a problem they need to reconcile. I have an ordinary life. I am expecting some kind of extraordinary call if God wants something from me. And that's where most Christians are. They think they have an ordinary life and that hearing from God is an extraordinary thing. So what can you do with that? Most Christians have to resolve this, and they do it the only way they know. They know on an intellectual level that, yes, God has a plan for me, and he's working in everything, but at the level of my life, where I wake up and have breakfast and go to work and then come home, I don't really expect him to chime in that much. Not that I'd resent it, just that I don't expect it. Because the alternative is what another believer might do. Live forever in that terrible tension. And that feels something like my ordinary life isn't real or doesn't count or doesn't have value unless I have an extraordinary call from God telling me to do something. And these are the people who don't want to make any big moves in their life unless they can be sure it's a divinely appointed move. What should I be doing with my life? What should I study? Uh, how do I find the partner that God has chosen for me? Uh, have I been selected by God to receive the somewhat disappointing gift of singleness? Uh, I don't know. How will I know? Should I buy a house or should I rent? Should I go to Bible college? What kind of jobs does God want me to apply for? This is a highly anxious, very unpleasant way to live. And usually those guys turn into the first lot over time anyway. Ordinary life, happy to receive an extraordinary call if not expecting it. And this is kind of a sad reality for a lot of people's underlying idea about who God is and what they can expect from him in their lives. It's sad because it smuggles in the idea that the real world and the real life, with all the decisions and the consequences that we, we have in our lives, that thing, the one that you are living in, is one to which God is a stranger who must be invited or coaxed in. And we know, if we paid any attention to the scriptures at all, that God made the world, he made everything in it, all the forces and the powers that suspend it and that spin it and all the creatures and the features of that world that make it up, uh, every person who ever has or does or will walk on its surface is his handiwork. So there's a real sense, actually, that when we come to pray, and we pray to God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth 
as it is in heaven. We're praying an already answered prayer because of course his kingdom is going to come and his will will be done. Who could stop him if they wanted to? And if God is the master of the world and everything in it and not a stranger that has to come into it, should we be surprised if he expects us to do his will and hear his voice in just the circumstances of our life that we live in, in as much as also in a maybe a particularly moving passage of scripture or a direct vision of God? Should we expect to hear from God in everything about how we live? And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then you know that you gave your life into his hands when you confessed him to be your Lord and Savior. And having done that genuinely with an open heart and a clear mind, we emerge out the other side of the baptistry, if no longer the owner of our life, certainly the shift manager or the duty manager for the duration of that life. So what do we do with that life that belongs to God? How do we navigate life if we don't have God's specific meticulous instructions for every part of it? How do we know what to do with our life? How do we know if we're supposed to marry this person or that person or be seeking contentment in singleness? Well, if we're looking for an example of someone in scripture who has the most assurance that he is listening to God and doing his will, then Paul's probably got to make the top five. Oops, here we are. Paul's got to make the top five. And uh, he's in some competition with guys like Moses, uh, who God explicitly leads with physical signs. Um, it's kind of hard to ignore the enormous pillar of fire, like literally leading you. What does God want me to do today? I guess we go there. Um, that might be a little bit easier. But out of the biblical figures who listen to God's voice speaking with the subtlety the Father uses most of the time in most of our lives, Paul's right up there. He has an overt religious experience that changes his life and he learns from the resurrected Jesus about the kind of life he is supposed to live and what he is going to be doing with that life. We can reasonably assume that he is praying frequently and vigorously, that he understands all of that time's scriptures that they had, uh, having yet to write a whole bunch of them himself, and that when he receives an extraordinary vision from God, an extraordinary word from God, he obeys that directly, of course. But the passage we read contains sort of interesting behavior, and I want to go over it again, because it's very fascinating. It goes like this. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of, I'm going to say Mysia, Mysia, I'm just going to keep changing back and forth, Mysia, uh, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and they went down to Troas. And during the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding God has called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, how visible is that? Mostly? Good. So this is... This is what we call modern-day Turkey. This is the, a whole lot of the Mediterranean. Ooh, I got a little laser. There we go, that's what I'm looking for. All right, so this is Asia Minor, Turkey. This part here is what they call Asia in Scripture, kind of this bit on like the end of Turkey. Uh, down here somewhere, around about here, you've got, uh, you got Judea. Uh, way over here is Greece on this chunk of the wall here, way off the map. Okay, we kind of know where we are in the world. 
This is part of what is called Paul's second missionary journey. And the first missionary journey he took was a little thing starting at Antioch down here, and they kind of scooped down to Cyprus and came back up here and then went back across the water, uh, back down. But they went through these areas. This is when they planted all the, a whole bunch of churches in uh, Cilicia and Pamphylia, and uh, the Galatian church is somewhere in there. That's where Paul planted all his churches on the first run. Okay? This is Paul and Barnabas, this initial missionary crew. And then they go in for the second journey. And the second journey is a little bit different to the first journey because Paul's intention seems to be, all right, I've been this far. I guess I'm going to get the rest of Asia, get all this stuff, visit around here, walk around here, plant more churches. And Paul wants to go up this way. And he has a falling out with Barnabas, which is where I assume we get the expression to have a Barney. Uh, he has a Barney with Barney all the way back down here. They have an argument over whether or not they are going to bring a young fellow called Mark with them, John Mark. Because in the previous missionary journey, Mark had piked out halfway. Um, he'd gotten this far away from home and said, nope, and he'd taken a boat back to Jerusalem. Um, there are probably good circumstances for that. But Barney says he's a good kid. We want to give him another chance. Let's give him another shot. Paul says this is a professional operation. I need to be able to rely on the people around me all the time. So he's out. And so they split. Barnabas and Mark sail south to Cyprus. They revisit the churches they've planted on that island that they've already established. Paul says, fine, go then. Come on, Silas, we're leaving. Uh, Silas, I like to imagine, gives them an apologetic look over his shoulder, like, I don't want to be in the middle of this. This is where I am. Um, and they head off to theoretically preach to all the churches in Asia, in Asia Minor here. Now keep in mind that uh, Paul does not have meticulous directions on this. He's not operating on a checklist of places God has sent him to go. He has an evangelistic mission that he has been given, but specifically where to head to, he hasn't been told. And we can tell that because he goes to the wrong places. Now, so in this, in this run, okay, they head up through here. Tarsus is around here, and so that's Paul's hometown. They head up here through uh, Pamphylia and Lycania. They head through Phrygia and Galatia, but we are told that the Spirit of God would not let them preach the gospel in Asia. We're not told precisely what that means, whether or not they were stopped by mortal authorities and they interpreted that as God shutting them down there, or whether they had some kind of uh, silence uh, put on them, they weren't allowed to, but either way, they couldn't do the thing they expected to do. So they go, okay, well, let's keep heading north. They head up here, they go to Bithynia, and they run into something that stops them. We're told the Spirit of Jesus would not let them cross over into Bithynia. They are prevented from even going into that place. So Paul's intention was to head north, stops there. He is squelched in his ambitions kind of twice by God. They stop, he's a little disheartened. They head all the way over here to Troas on this west coast. And that's where they receive this vision, the vision of the Macedonian man. Now, is this someone Paul recognizes? Is the Macedonian man a real person that Paul knows? We're not told. Is he some kind of composite Macedonian everyman? Um, maybe as Macedonian as he could be at the time, with a name badge that said Stavros and a chicken Euros in one hand, um, inviting them in. 
We're not told. But Paul has this vision. He and Silas immediately pack up. They prepare to hop across the sea to Macedon, concluding that God has called them to preach there in Europe rather than in Asia. And the thing to note about all this is, you see how messy this process kind of is? For Paul, of all people, arguably the most important non-God person in the New Testament, being the foundation of the early church and... um, the non-God point, the portion of the foundation of the early church. Uh, God doesn't have an open Skype call with him at all times. There's not a pillar of fire leading him. It's a clumsy thing. They have a fight when they don't know how they're going to proceed. Um, they, uh, he thinks he's going up north and that doesn't work and then they can't even leave the area by the northern exit he thought he was going to go through. They have to try the other border and only then, only then are they given the clarity to conclude that God intends this for them to go across the sea and start preaching in Macedon, in the Greece area. In fact, they only get this when they start moving in the direction that God intends them to go. They start going west, and then they get a vision that commends them to go further west. And that's an interesting reality of their situation. But what I'm getting at here is that we have neither the right to expect God will direct every decision of our lives with some kind of meticulous revelation, with personalized commands. We don't have that right. And neither do we have the license to proceed with our lives as if God were not interested in them and it was just kind of up to us. We belong to him. We've been bought with a price. And what's more, he made us. It's not as if we didn't belong to him in the first place. He made us the life we have to live and every circumstance in which we will live. And so seeking after his will is the only way for the life that we were made to live. So our underlying commitment before our decisions, opportunities, anything like that must be, I am going to live a life that God would approve of me having, that glorifies him, that shows people that I am living for him. I'm going to spend my time in my life doing those things which God would delight in me doing. So that's our baseline to begin with, to have a commitment to living a life that God would delight in me living. And so the next step naturally comes, well, what does he want me to do? God may direct you from time to time towards specific activities in specific seasons of your life. He may do that fairly consistently. He may reveal something to you in your time of prayer or in in fact in a dream um, or on top of a uh, conspicuous repeated suggestion from people you trust that you should go into a certain career field or take a particular uh, offer to volunteer somewhere. How to hear God's voice in these ways is the substance of other talks in this series. But the character of God, as revealed in Scripture, gives us a great deal of understanding about a life that would please God. It gives us the only real understanding we get about the life that would please God. And that applies to all of God's people, not just some of us, not just individuals. Scripture tells us what God wants from us. And I don't mean that in a, uh, in a particularly special kind of way, as if you read a scripture and that scripture jumps out and speaks to you more deeply than some other scripture might. I mean the flat, basic, God said it, there it is kind of way of reading scripture. The thing that you benefit from by reading scripture for years, for the duration of your life. And you get wisdom like... Anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. 
These are strong words. They tell us that God intends for us to have a sense of duty, of care, first to our immediate family and then our relatives outside that and then the wider neighborhood of humanity after that. Family does matter and even if we don't get along with them and even if we clash with them sometimes, we have a God-given command to honor them and to look after them. Obviously, an abusive situation is kind of a different thing and requires additional judgment, but if you deviate from this rule, you better have a real good reason, the kind that you can offer directly to God who will hold you to account for it. Here's another one, this one from Proverbs. A good person leaves an inheritance for their children's children, but a sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. What does this tell us? Well, it tells us two things. One, that God has a providential way of taking away the wealth of sinners, the Israelites, plundering the Egyptians comes to mind, but two, that we have an obligation to manage our money in a way that we bless later generations with it. Not to uh, sort of sputter into heaven on the last fumes of our wealth on earth, but to pass it on, to teach good management of it to our children and to their children. If you want to know God's will for your wallet, it's in the scriptures. Live frugally, treat yourself sometimes, accumulate wealth responsibly, and increase your generosity in proportion to any prosperity God gives you. That's kind of it. We do not require specific guidance on the matter for us personally, because he's given us his word universally, in his word. And certainly not the least of which, my favorite verse, Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Justice, mercy, and humility. And so when you find yourself in a difficult situation and not sure what you are supposed to do, here's a fine place to start. What's the just, fair thing to do? Is there an opportunity to show mercy and compassion like God has shown it to you? Does the thing that I want to do flatter my pride or does it require me to be humble? This is the word of God and it is what he expects of all those who love him to do. There's a, uh, something of a misconception or maybe a, a bad characterization of the Bible as a manual for life that's sometimes thrown around. It's not true in anything other than the most surface sense because a manual is a book you only look at if something is wrong. And the Bible is entirely separate from that category. God's word benefits you principally by soaking in it, marinating in it, uh, reading it constantly, getting to know it over time, having it stored up in you, knowing both the character of God and the specific commands that he's given us in his word. We can't wait until something goes wrong or we require that wisdom to go hunting for it. We have to let him prepare us for it with his word. There's a lot of good reasons to study scripture. Sometimes God has something to say just indeed to you in a passage you read. Sometimes you discover new wonderful things that you didn't see there before, but certainly engaging with the Bible teaches you more and more about the character of God and what he expects of his followers. And the more you know that, Whatever you are confronted with, the better equipped you are to know what God wants of you in that situation. And so when the circumstances in your life present themselves to you with choices, the first place to go is the character of God as revealed in Scripture and his commands to us. Not because we expect to find a specific direct command there, but because he's told us how to live. 
because our life belongs to him. Now, sometimes circumstances don't present us with a discernible solution. Uh, Paul and Barnabas undoubtedly both thought that they were following God's will when they parted uh, on their journey, and presumably they were. They covered more ground that way. Paul and Silas thought they were doing God's will when they went to preach in Asia, and then they were stopped from doing so. But the fact that it didn't work out doesn't mean that they weren't listening hard enough or uh, that their heads were clouded with sin and they couldn't hear God's real voice or anything like that. Although you can dull yourself to the voice of God with sin. But Paul and Silas were just doing God's will with the information they had at hand. God wants us to bring the gospel to the nations. There's a nation. Let's go. The fact that this portion of the uh, esteemed apostles' journey resembles like a Roomba, a vacuum cleaner robot trying to make its way out of a corner um, of a room and keeps banging into walls. That's not a slight on their faith. God is perfectly happy to communicate his will to you by closing doors until you walk through the right one. He's patient and he's good with us, and that's certainly how he's worked with me in the past. I've told my story a whole bunch of times in this service, but the short version is, I felt like I was a smart guy right out of high school, and I wasn't sure what I was supposed to be doing with my life, what God wanted me to do, and I spent a long time trying out a bunch of courses and jobs, uh, counseling, social work, programming, database design, construction, retail, kind of a nice big spread of random stuff, until I had so many doors closed on me that I was forced to turn and confront the one that had the sign that said ministry. And as I went through that door, it occurred to me that I knew that this was really the door I should have been going through in the first place. And I was worried that I had wasted those years of my life prior, but God taught me very soon that he's a master artist. He doesn't waste things. And if I hadn't taken that big loopy path to get there in the first place, I'd be a very different man and probably not one equipped for the task of ministry he wanted me for. If you're pursuing your own agenda and you're expecting God to chime in at some point with an extraordinary call to stop you, all you are doing is begging him to throw something at you that knocks you on your back so hard you pay attention to him properly. And if you're unsure of what way to go and you don't want to mess up God's plan and so you're frozen in inaction, I promise that God will send you a deadline of some kind that will get you moving one way or another. But if you look at the next decision of your life, from the circumstances that you are in, and you use the wisdom that God has given you in his word, to chart a course that God would approve of, the God we know through his word, then you're pursuing his will the right way. Even if your first couple of steps in the direction that you thought was the right way are stumbles and falls and you have to course correct a couple of times, then just accept that closed door. That's God's way of telling you to try another angle and go again. God isn't outside of the world whispering into your ear. He is in this world. He is intimately a part of every door that closes and opens. And if you keep your ears open and seek to live the kind of life that God desires, you can't help but see him directing your life everywhere. Now that's not to say this is easy to live the kind of life that God desires. You have to be saturated by daily habit in the character of God and the ways of his people as the word presents it to you. It requires all the habits of discipline of a disciple in good working order. But if you do that, if you devote yourself to these personal habits of prayer and time in the word, 
then you never have to make a decision in your life with the fear that God has been silent because he's been speaking to you the whole time. And that is a wonderful assurance to have. So let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for everything because we owe everything to you, our wealth, our opportunities, the families in which we live, the friends we have in our lives, and the Savior who lifted us up from the pit of death and into the promise of forgiveness and eternal life. We owe it all to you. As we look forward to that new life, Lord, the one in eternity, help us live this one now in a way that glorifies and pleases you. Help us to remember your lordship when it might otherwise be easy to charge on as if we were alone. Help us to make decisions that exalt you and uphold justice and mercy in the world. And in our most intimate moments of prayer and in our most mundane in-between hours, Lord, show us the way to walk humbly with you. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.